from the Blinks Labs headquarters in Berlin, Germany. This is the Blinkist podcast. Uh, if you're new to the Blinkist podcast, welcome. Uh, the idea is, you know, we're going deeper into the nonfiction book world, trying to get into the heads of the inspiring and genius people who are behind these books. I'm Ben, the producer, and I'm here to welcome you to the second of two podcasts on the theme of Eureka. Eureka, as you know, is uh, I have found it in ancient Greek. And last week, if you were around, you heard the interview I did with Pagan Kennedy, the author of Inventology. So to follow that up, uh, I tracked down bestselling author, award-winning podcaster, and management professor David Berkus. He is the author of The Myths of Creativity, which came out a couple of years ago. And this year, he has a new book out called Under New Management. And this was a really fun interview. David's a really personable guy. He was super easy to set up the interview with, super easy to talk to. Uh, he's got a great sense of humor, and he he has this way of uh, pulling research out of the air. Like he can just name a study, and and just throw it into a conversation like it's nothing. It's pretty awesome. At the end of the interview, um, I asked him for a couple podcast tips. So that was something that I really enjoyed about this interview. And by the way, this is our fourth weekly podcast in a row with starting with Ariana Huffington. Max Kirsten, Pagan Kennedy, and now David Burkus, which is such a cool, eclectic um, month of podcasts. And, you know, I'd love to hear from you guys about what you think, how I did, um, whether it's about audio quality or about the content or the length or how grating you find my voice in your ears. Let me know. Uh, you can email me at podcast at Um That goes straight to me. So... All right, let's go right into the interview. Uh, here's me talking to David Burkus. I was in Berlin, and he was in the States. Hope you guys enjoy it. I'll catch you in the outro. So we have to do like a fake a fake hello, right? Yeah, probably, yeah. yeah. All right. Um, how do I do that? I just say, I go, all right. Hey, welcome to the Blinkist podcast. And then it's like chuckles. Yeah, and then, and then I laugh too, because we're faking it. And we've already been talking for three minutes. Good. So that's fine. So thanks for coming on the podcast. It's cool that you had time to do it. And um, we were talking a little bit earlier about the old book, Myths of Creativity. And a lot of people know, and you also explain in your book, that Eureka comes from the ancient Greek for I have found it, and this kind of idea of insight and revelation. But in your book, Eureka isn't exactly debunked, but is maybe placed into a piece of a larger, more complicated process than this idea struck me from on high. Right? Yeah. Yeah. What's, I mean, the best, the best way to say it is, is we definitely debunk the, uh, the original story of the Eureka Archimedes in the bathtub probably never happened. It was written down 200 years after it would have had happened. And the, I don't know much about, you know, ancient tribal Kings and all of that sort of thing, but I'm pretty sure if anyone ran naked into the King's chambers and screamed Eureka, they would probably have been beheaded. So, <laughs> so, so, uh, and you can't find a lot of supporting evidence that that story happened. Happened. Nor can you find actually when you dive into the story of um, of Isaac Newton and the apple, you you don't really find uh, the the best story you find is is Newton relating the idea that apples fall to the ground with uh, gravity. You don't find this incident where he got pegged in the head by a piece of fruit, right? But those those stories definitely resonate with us. We've we've all had that like that aha moment, that thing where it suddenly comes to us and. 
and I think, you know, actually probably because a lot of those incidents happen in the shower, uh, the only workplace safe uh, time to talk about bathing is when you're talking about a great idea. You start any other story. <laughs> I, I always found this weird. You start any other story with, so I was in the shower and you're getting a call from HR. <laughs> but if you finish the story with, and then I had this great idea, no one bothers you. And I think that that speaks to this sort of wanting the Archimedes story to be true because we've all had that, that aha, insight, eureka type moment. It turns out that, you know, it's it's not this idea like Archimedes would have believed and like we reinforce with the story of Newton and the Apple. It's not this idea that the idea was out there floating somewhere and it got downloaded into your brain or, you know, you struck by lightning and suddenly it, it just came to you. It was actually there all along. And what we find most often is that these aha moments happen because what preceded them was a period of incubation, a period of stepping back away from the process. And there's a whole lot of science we can dive into if we want to get super nerdy on why this happens. But as soon as we know that there's a process, I love that because then we can re repeat it, right? And so while we debunk the idea that you have to sit around and wait for your eureka moment, what we do say is you can have that aha moment almost on demand as long as you're willing to engage in the process. So when you personally need to be creative, do you go through that process or do you have your own? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I take a shower every time I need to be. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. So so the, the process uh, to dive into the process real quick and then I'll tell you how, how I apply it to me, because I think everybody's a little bit different, but it might help you is the, the research comes from a brilliant man by the name of Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, whose name is is just fun to say, but who also was one of the legendary figures in creativity research. And what he did was he studied the most prolifically creative people in a variety of fields. Uh, how he settled on the list is actually pretty cool. He surveyed hundreds of people in a bunch of different fields and said, who, who is the most creative person in your field? And when their answers congregated around certain people, he then sought those people out. And then he asked them a pretty open-ended question, describe your creative process. And then when he looked at all the answers, he found that everybody was describing about a five-stage process where you had uh, a period of research um, figuring out the right question, understanding the the background of the question, all of those sort of things. Then incubation, which was a time of stepping away from the problem in the front of your mind and letting it be back in the subconscious, working on something else. Uh, a lot of people who juggle projects find incubation happens naturally because if you just switch to a different project, you're incubating the one you were just on. Then that's usually preceded by the insight. And interestingly enough, sometimes that insight is the aha. Sometimes we're in incubation and something clicks in the subconscious and it all comes together and we're, we're actually pulled out of incubation into insight because of what happened in our brain. Other times we force it. We go into a, an ideation, a brainstorming or just a big you know, creative jam session. And when that happens after a period of incubation, the research supports that you have more and you have better ideas when you have had that period of incubation. Even as little as five minutes of pushing this idea back to our subconscious before we bring it back to the front of our mind can enhance the quality of the ideas that we have. Uh, and then in Csikszentmihalyi's research, after that insight uh, moment, you have evaluation and elaboration, which are basically stages that say you evaluate, is the idea any good? And then elaboration is putting it out there into the world. But the big key one as it pertains to Eureka is this idea of incubation and insight coming hand in hand. The incubation almost always precedes the insight. And if you know that, then you can engage in research, deliberately go into incubation, and then come out of it with the aha. So 
So your, your other part of the question was, what do I do? Um, I actually treat email like my incubator. So, you know, a, as an author, especially, I, I get a lot of emails from people who've read the book and want to point uh, an article to my attention or people who, like you and I, want to schedule something, et cetera. Most of the, the emails that I get on a day-to-day basis are not exactly the most creative, cognitively demanding responses that I need to come up with. So they're actually perfect for pushing to the back of my mind. So I don't, I don't get automatic notifications and any of that sort of stuff. I go to the well and get my emails when I want them. And usually what I do is I structure it at a certain point in the day where I actually need to be incubating, incubating. So even today I'm, I'm working on a piece um, about work-life integration versus work-life balance. And I read, I printed out all the stuff and I read all the research. And then I went to my email inbox and answered a bunch of emails. Uh, and then I started writing the article. So what that gave me was some time just to let everything gel in the back of my mind, About only about 30 minutes this time before I actually jumped into the project. And, and what's great, it's better than sitting under a tree and waiting to get pegged in the head by an apple or, <laughs> or taking a shower because I'm still being productive. I'm just juggling my tasks in such a way that I'm alternating between the ones that really demand creativity and the ones that don't require higher level thinking so that I can be incubating one while I'm working on the other. Mm-hmm. So did you come up with any good ideas? Yeah. Yeah. I like, I like where I'm at. Um, I got, I can't figure out, uh, just to be totally honest, I can't figure out how to uh, conclude the articles. So I basically pushed it aside for a day and I'll take it up again tomorrow and see if I, if the conclusion, I can't say if the conclusion comes to me cause it's already there somewhere in my head, uh, but hmm. see if the pieces click together and we've got something to, to end it on. So this, uh, this thing of it's already in there. It's like, you already have the great idea. Yeah. Right. No, I mean, you, you already do. And there's, there's a bunch of different theories about why incubation works, but my favorite is selective forgetting. So what's the selective forgetting kind of theory says is that all the, all the ideas, all the raw materials already there. But if you've ever like, if you ever tried to work on a problem and you, you think of the same wrong answer over and over again, mm-hmm. like what's happening is your mind kind of functions in connections. It's why you have to retrace your steps, go from what you were thinking about three or four times to and and follow that chain of thoughts again. We think in that chain and and often we can get really stuck in a specific chain when it's the wrong answer. So we take up the problem and we find ourselves with the wrong answer because we're just retracing the same steps. Incubation and selective forgetting basically says that when it's in your subconscious, those that chain is kind of breaking apart and allowing new connections to form. So everything is there. You've just got the combination wrong. And when you're incubating and selectively forgetting, you're opening yourself up to new possible combinations. And one of them is probably going to be the one you need. Mm-hmm. And and every and you believe your book makes the argument that everybody has this basically the same. It's like a great blessing that we all have somehow. Yeah. Yeah. And blessing is actually a good word for it because we, we tend to think that there's like this class of people that are blessed with creative ideas. Uh, and then there's this class of people that aren't creative. And, and the truth is it's a blessing that we all have. We all have this capacity. We just kind of have to understand how our own brain works and also get back into practice. A lot of times when the people who say they, they can't have great ideas, they don't, they're not very creative. What they actually mean is that they haven't been challenged to have one for, you know, the past five, 10, 15 years because of whatever life and career choices they made. And so they're out of practice. And really the only thing that separates those people who would classify themselves as being super creative from those that aren't is that level of practice. How used to this process are they? How familiar with it uh, are they? And can they do it on demand or not? Hmm. So in, are, are you still a professor, by the way? Because I like looked up all your bios and you know stalked you for a couple of days 
and I, f- I don't know if you're still a professor or a recovering professor, as you said in one <laughs> podcast. Yeah, yeah. I refer to myself as a recovering academic. I, I am definitely still a professor. What I, what I mean by that is that I've found that my strengths and my passions and what I want to do are more about bridging the gap between the ivory tower and the corner office and more about taking research and bringing it into the hands of the practitioners that, that need it than doing the research myself. So I, I'm a recovering academic because I've basically given up on doing running my own labs and doing my own um, studies and trying to publish in, in peer-reviewed journal articles. And now I'm more fascinated with helping those academics get their work out there and appreciated by the people who need to hear the evidence-based information. Not, I mean, not unlike what we're doing here today. We're mm-hmm. talking about uh, a bunch of people's different research on incubation that needs to be, somebody needs to shout it a little bit louder. And that that's what I lend my voice to instead of doing the research as a whole. So that's what I mean by recovering academic. But I'm also still in the classroom, still teaching undergrad and grad courses in business. So, yeah. And did, did you get to take this, uh, the myths of creativity kind of um, approach or this at least uh, Cheek Sent Me High's uh, process to companies? And if you did, how was it different from dealing with students as opposed to dealing it with dealing with corner offices? or open floor plants, whatever it was. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so, um, I mean, dealing with students, it's it's actually a lot easier to build incubation time in because you usually have a Monday, Wednesday, Friday class. Um, I found that when I... Um, when I start working with organizations, if I can, what I will actually try and do is structure the whole day-long workshop or two-day-long whatever we do in such a way that I have control over when we take breaks and where we are and that sort of thing so that we can work incubation uh, into it. That's just one of the ideas from uh, Miss of Creativity. Uh, you, you hinted at the open offices and all that sort of stuff. That all comes from uh, the new book, Under New Management, which is, is mm-hmm. really kind of about you know, missive creativity dealt with what are the misconceptions we have about either becoming or being a creative professional. And um, Under New Management deals with all of these firms that have had to do management a little bit differently because they manage knowledge work organizations or creative work organizations. Uh, they do things a little bit differently. You know, one of them is, like you said, the trend to the um, – to the open office, which is an interesting one, because if you're always in an open office and you're always com- having conversations and always being interrupted, you're probably not carving in enough incubation time, which is what I argue mm-hmm. that that we probably need to close them a little bit. We need to open up, you know, severely closed offices for sure, but we also need to close fully open ones because we need to carve in that space. Um, so that's yeah. I mean, I don't I don't want to say that like uh, under new management is missive creativity applied to business, but they both deal with this bigger issue of as the nature of work changes and the type of work we all have to do, we probably have to rewrite a lot of rules and a lot of conceptions that we had about how it's, it's supposed to work in, with how mm-hmm. it actually does work based on research. The, the transition I wrote down quickly to try and get from the first book to the second book was like, um, because employees have to make so much of their own decisions now, right? They have to be creative. They have to be able to find these ideas. They have to be able to think creatively, not just management, but also the employees and the management has to be able to push that. Right. Yeah, no, totally. So there, I mean, there was a time where the only people that had to be creative were senior leaders and management, and you could just tell labor, this is how the factory is going to run. Just do it. Uh, mm-hmm. That that doesn't work anymore. We made that shift from industrial to knowledge work, and and most employees uh, a know more 
about the type of work or how to do the work that they've been assigned to do. But because of that, they also uh, are required to think about it in a more creative way than ever before. Uh, and when that happens, management becomes much more of a supportive role than a demanding role. And that's really what under new management is about is what, what policy and practice changes do we have to make now that we're asking everyone in the workforce to do more knowledge work, to be more creative in their everyday work. Uh, things are going to, we can't use the same old rules that we use for managing a factory. So like in, in midst of creativity, when you were talking about incubation, you talk about this Sydney university research, um, that showed people had the most ideas when they were interrupted, forced to work on something else, even that I think you made the connotation basically to encourage mind wandering, right? Yeah. Yeah. So like how, so what's a policy that we could write for a company to like, to encourage mind wandering? <laughs> well, so, <laughs> so you're, you're putting me on the spot. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to actually pivot, um, if I can. So in, in, uh, and I shouldn't tell you, I'm supposed to masterfully pivot like a politician, but I just, I can't do that. Um, one of the other, one of the other, um, myths that we talk about in this creativity is the expert myth, meaning that the best ideas always come from the most knowledgeable people. Uh, and that turns out not to be true. Often disruptive innovations and things like that happen when somebody goes from a field they are an expert in to a relatively new field and, and brings their expertise with them to a place that hasn't tried it before or sees something um, from a different field and brings it into the field that they're an expert in. And we find in, in terms of organizationally, we find that one of the biggest blockers to allowing that to happen is that traditional org chart, traditional reporting relationship, the idea that your team is defined as whoever your manager is and the 10 people that report to her. And that's a team. And that doesn't really work well when we're trying to come up with lots of innovative ideas. Most teams need to be built on the project level, not the old org chart. Or as I say, we probably need to be writing the org chart in pencil so that we can keep erasing it, rewriting it as the needs demand and as we need different people on the team. Um, so, yeah, so that's one idea. Um, that gave me a little bit of time to think about um, in <laughs> incubation. Um, one of the, uh, one of the things I talk also talk about in under new management is actually ironically, cause I told you I use email to incubate. Um, but it's actually the idea that there are a lot of companies that are putting limits on, um, nighttime and weekend email or even internal email entirely. Some are banning it outright. Uh, and the reason is that it's forcing people to think about work 24 seven. Right. And mm -hmm. while while we tend to think about work life balance as, you know, you need time to rest and recharge. The truth is that time you're playing with your, your kid or you're interacting with your, your spouse, your partner, that's technically also time you're incubating at work. So actually letting people plug out of the organization. You know, if you've got a smartphone, you take your work home with you every night. Well, the incubation research would suggest that you shouldn't be doing that. Right. You shouldn't mm -hmm. be taking your work home with you. So drawing bigger limits on how or drawing bigger boundaries on the digital world so that people are actually have time away from work. It makes work better. So that's that's one of the ideas. My previous pivot allowed me time to think about that. one. <laughs> so there right, we go. Pivot for the pivot. It's like op it's like opening the closed office and closing the open or like doing contortionist podcast answering. Well, right you know now. what? I mean, not, not to get super meta, but what I needed to do was pivot to something I knew how to talk about so that I could be incubating the answer to your question. Uh, right. And that's it's, exactly what you just witnessed. You, it's like a proto incubation phase during when you can nest in incubations inside of other incubations. Totally. We just inceptioned the whole thing. <laughs> exactly. This podcast just broke. We just, everything's just, we did. The, are cracking. the top is just spinning and spinning and spinning and, and we'll yeah. cut, we'll cut out before we let you know if it falls over. Right. Actually, we're just going to be the only people remaining. Everybody else is gone. Totally. If you look outside. So what's new since your book came out that you wish, uh, you wish you could have put in there? I mean, the myths of creativity book. 
Uh, well, I mean, I, I wish I could have put in everything from under new management, but no. Um, mm. <laughs> so really, yeah, not really. But I mean, I see that I, I see every every book is sort of that through line, right? So you write mm. one book, and that that gives you a question, and then you chase that rabbit hole down, and out comes another book. Uh, in terms of updating the myths of creativity, the the research on incubation and Eureka hasn't really changed. Um, the most interesting research um, that's changed a little bit is we've we've gotten. Uh, a little bit further on this idea, I talk about it at the very end of the myth of creativity, but this idea of the mousetrap myth, which mm-hmm. is the the mousetrap myth is if you build a better mousetrap, the world will beat a path to your door. That sounds great, but it's a total myth. Great ideas are rejected all of the time. And at the time, there was some really interesting research by Jennifer Mueller um, from, I think she was at University of Pennsylvania at the time. I do not know if that's where she is anymore, but um, really interesting research that shows that even when we say we want creative ideas, when we're presented with them, uh, we're more likely to to turn them down, especially in, in periods of uncertainty in favor of the status quo. She did a follow-up study that came out after the book um, was published that shows that if you're in a management role, you're actually even more likely than if you're in an employee role to uh, to turn down creative ideas. And in fact, you know, they'll survey customers and see what customers want, and then they'll survey managers and see what managers think are the creative ideas that customers want. And there's a huge disconnect there, uh, which I think is really interesting and highlights that shift we were talking about earlier, the idea that the people on the front lines are asked to do more and more of the creative work. And maybe, maybe that's a good thing because maybe they have a better ear uh, to the ground on what the customer wants than does the manager, which is what that sort of later research supports. I wish I would have, I could have put that in the book, but obviously I didn't know it existed um, because it was only, <laughs> it was only on Jennifer Mueller's computer at the time. But once it got published, it was sort of like, oh man, I wish I could have included that one. It's like she waited for you to publish it. Just so no, totally. Well, and, it right I, and, I, and I have it on good authority. She's working on her own book about the implications of both of those studies. So I, I also wish I could have read that book before, but you know, that's, that one won't come out for, for uh, years. So, so yeah. I, I had this idea of a marketplace where authors who are working on books at the same time could like kind of be updating. You wouldn't have to like give away your trade secrets or anything, but while you're working on a book, you, people have a general idea of what everybody's working on. And if you had it like really like a big network of all the authors and you could do it in fiction also, right? Yeah. And then people could see kind of what everybody else is working on and say, maybe actually I should wait six months because it looks like this person's about to, you know, finish this one thing that I need to make my argument. Oh, totally. You know I mean? Or or even just that, hey, this, like Missive Creativity, I don't know if I told you this, Missive Creativity came out the day after the Kelly Brothers, who are the founders of IDEO, the Kelly Brothers Creative Confidence came out. So right. talk about like sucking all of the air out of media attention for the <laughs> Missive Creativity. And it's a great book. I don't want to put it down, but it was like, man, if I knew that I would have waited a month or or released it a month earlier or something like that. So yeah, you're, you're totally right. But you know, I was I watched your Google Talk the other day, and back then, I guess it wasn't that long ago. But you you were like, you want to start this conversation about creativity, and f- I mean, or or at least about the myths of creativity, and you did. I mean, that was a success. Like here we are talking about Eureka, and like who am I going to look up to try to talk about this? Oh, totally. You know and, I mean? and well, and and the other the other thing is conversation, right? I mean, I I know from the beginning, like, and I know this because there's another myth in the book called the originality myth, which is often when we think we're the only one that had the idea, we're wrong. Um, I love that that book came out and that six months later, Ed Catmull's Creativity Inc. came out and all of mm-hmm. these different books that are talking about about the process and let's get rid of the mystery and talk about what is replicable, what can everybody do. I love being a voice in that conversation, but I, I definitely wouldn't want to be the only voice, um, right. especially when there are such great voices like those three uh, talking about it. I, I lo- that, that word conversation is key. 
That's great. So if you could interview one person, dead or alive, to speak about creativity, who would it be? One person, dead or alive, to speak specifically about creativity? Um, Probably Walt Disney. Um, And not in the sense of like, oh, how did you think to come up with Snow White or whatever? But I am fascinated with Disney World, Mm -hmm. which is something that, you know, everybody talks about how he saw it and then Roy Disney built it. And I would just love to dive in more of of that, like from a business standpoint, right? Making, they always said like, we don't, we don't make movies to make money. We, we make money so we can make more movies type of thing. I get that from a creative work standpoint, but an amusement park, uh, you know, a resort, that's a business that you've really got to do a strong business case for. And I would just love to get the inside story behind how they did that and basically change the whole world of amusement parks and all that sort of stuff. And also created like uh, my wife and I went to Disney World alone without our kids for our te- for our 10 year anniversary because it just loved this place so much. And we did a tour of like behind the scenes and all that kind of stuff. I just love to know more about that, both Disneyland and Disney World. So yeah, let's go with Walt Disney. Awesome. That's cool that you didn't say Steve Jobs or, you know, I mean, Picasso or something. Yeah, well, I mean, jo- Jobs is an interesting one. Jobs is kind of a Rorschach test, right? You see in mm-hmm. Jobs whatever you want to see about Jobs. And and I worry that we do sort of the same thing um, with, with Picasso and a bunch of other h- historical figures. So yeah, those, those answers would be great. But again, like it's, it's the idea that you would, I, I would want to go to find out things I can't find it out anywhere else. So in any, in any of those situations, yeah, I, I'd want to know what the real jobs is like, because so much writing on jobs is really more a reflection of, and same with, with any artist like a Picasso, et cetera. And probably same with Disney too. And that's why I want that inside track view. Um, because so much of it is just a reflection on what the person writing the article or the book about the historical figure is. It's more a reflection on them than it is the actual person they're writing the book about. Right. I, I had this, I, I, I was looking through some of the creativity books that have come out recently and looking at if anybody had spoken about like athletes who act instinctively in the moment and create something new or sometimes do something no one's ever done before or you know what I mean? Just like this kind of reaction feel. Yeah. Do you know, do you know anything in the research or can so, you give me a... So from an individual level, um, I don't. From a... Uh, Keith Sawyer is a researcher in creativity that does a lot. He has a book called Group Genius, which is about... Mm-hmm. Um, a bunch of different fields where people have to improvise and interact and find their way into creative solutions. And I think it includes a, a little bit of athletics, especially basketball, I want to say. Um, that might not actually be in the book. I might totally be uh, reading that from an article that I thought was a section of Group Genius. Um, but Sawyer, uh, his background comes from um, both jazz and improvisational comedy. And so he's looking at the when you have to make a quick on the fly improvisational decision uh, for a, a whole group. So that would be where I would recommend you start. And, and I guess anybody listening who's interested, that'd be where I recommend you start. I don't know that they've ever done that on an individual level, but it definitely mm-hmm. deals with that same improvisation issue that you're talking about. Cool. And uh, we don't have, we're basically out of time, but I, I wanted to ask quickly how the podcast new new name new format and thing things are going oh from radio free leader yeah yeah it's going really well uh true to the originality myth i uh, started a podcast and the original name of it was trademarked to someone else uh and i found that out via very nicely worded letter from an attorney (laughs) uh and so we had to change and so we did (laughs) so Ah. so that's that's basically the story on it i wish him well i wish i would have uh submitted uh to the interestingly enough it wasn't a podcast so we probably could have made the argument that these are um, two obviously different products, but honestly, it wasn't worth it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the, the interesting thing about creativity is if I came up with one good name, I could probably come up with another one. And this time I'd actually check the trademarks. So, nice. so that's what we did. Nice. And that's, that's why we changed it to radio free leader and our trademark application is pending. So that's good news too. So I won't just quickly name mine like right now, radio free, free leader or anything. I promise. I mean, you can, but expect a, a nicely <laughs> worded letter from my attorney. What? So can you give me a tip? What should I not do? What's the one mistake I should not make podcast wise besides like starting an interview before everybody's recording <laughs> before the, before my side, um, <laughs> which is not anything that happened. Recently. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all right. So here's, so here's my best advice and I feel bad for this. Um, my best advice is totally ignore the press briefing that gets tucked into review copies of books, right? So we do this thing, um, where usually we do it for lazy journalists. I'll be honest, where we, we ship them a book, but then we also ship them like a 10 page document. That's like, here's the talking points from the book. Don't do that. Read it. The best interviews I've ever been on and the best interviews I've ever done are when you read into the book and you find something that nobody is asking that author and you dive into that for 30 minutes. Not unlike we did here. I very rarely get to spend a full 30 minutes just talking about incubation, uh, mm-hmm. but it comes from you looking at it and you deciding what you wanted to do. So yeah, that's right. that's what I would do. Ig- ignore the bullet points, ignore all of that stuff that we do uh, for lazy journalists and, and just dive into asking the question you would want to ask from that author and the conversation that comes from it is way better. Which, by the way, you've already done. And that's why this has been <laughs> such a, an awesome interview, even if we didn't hit record right off the bat. Shh, we don't have to tell them that. We're just, oh, just, I mean, we're ev- just... even if I don't know how to end without. So <laughs> even if we're both actually recording in the shower, I'm in the yes. shower in Berlin. Well, I'm actually time. I'm actually sitting under a tree waiting to get hit in the head by a piece <laughs> of fruit. Awesome. All right. Well, look, thanks again. We're out of time. This was really fun. I hope you uh, think of us when your next book comes out and we can do this again. Yeah, totally. It'd be great. Thank you. Awesome. All right. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye. See ya. Today's Blinkist podcast was produced by me, Ben Schumann-Stoller, and Odie, who once got into a bar fight about Clippy the Microsoft paperclip. If you're looking for more Blinkist interviews, check out our page on iTunes or SoundCloud or search Blinkist in your favorite podcatcher. Find the Blinkist radio. Subscribe. Let us know what you think. Give us a heart. All that stuff is much appreciated. And yeah, if you liked what you heard or if you didn't like what you heard, shoot me an email. I'd love to hear what you think. I'm at podcast at Blinkist.com. That's podcast at Blinkist.com. All right. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed the interview with David Burkus. This concludes our Eureka theme. The next theme is going to be about the Olympics, which I'm very excited about. So keep your eyes open for that. We'll be back with some good stuff about the Olympics in the next weeks. In the meantime, be good. See you around. This is Ben signing off. Bye-bye.